following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Here's the question I want to start with. Why is it that some people don't attend church? You know, that they would call themselves Christians, but they don't. Well, some would say, well, it's boring. Or it's, the services are too long. Or all they want is money. Or they're too political. Or one time they hurt me. But one of the common responses that you get from the world when you say, why don't you come to my church? Well, the church is just massively filled with what? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now, what do you do when they say that? You know, because they're really insulting you because you go to church. So they're, they're basically laying this out. I would recommend that you own it like a wreath. All right? Put it on your head and go, you're right. They are sinners who have been saved by grace, who are kind of trying to walk with Christ and make their way to heaven. But yes, they struggle with that, and we all struggle with it together. Now, the problem with hypocrisy, though, in the list of things that we could be talking about, is that the painful reality is when you look at the New Testament, the Lord's reaction to hypocrisy is pretty strong. Would you agree? When he starts talking to the Pharisees and he just nails them with their hypocritical actions of trying to be very pious in front of public awareness, but internally they are so far from Christ and so far from God. And really, Christ reserves his severest criticism to those who show off, who parade their piety. In fact, few things turn Jesus Christ off more than religion on parade. Would you agree? I mean, that's really what's happening. And it's a plague that has started in the book of Genesis, and it's a plague that will continue all the way in to the closing of Revelation. It is something that we all battle with. Interesting enough, Cain was the first hypocrite feigning worship by offering a sacrifice that God the Father didn't want. Absalom, you know who he is, the son of David? He actually swore allegiance to his dad, King David, at the very same time planned an insurrection against him while he was doing that. Judas Iscariot, of course the most famous hypocrite of all, you know, feigned a greeting Christ with the kiss of friendship while he's betraying him. And Ananias and Sapphira, are you familiar with them? Uh, hypocritically claimed to have given the church all the proceeds of the land that they had sold. They, they could have just kept some of it themselves. But they told everybody they'd given it all. And because they lied to the Holy Spirit, he took them home right then and there. That's why hypocrisy is never treated lightly in Scripture. And every single one of us, to some degree, battles with this. In fact, in Amos chapter 5, God says he hates hypocrisy. It's called leaven and whitewashed tombs and tares among the wheat and wolves and sheep's clothing. Thankfully, we serve a God who knows us and knows every element above us. And he can basically get beneath the veneer of the showy, external, dress-to-impress actions of our lives and really expose us for who we really are. Can he not? He can. And everyone who really is dependent upon Christ knows that hypocrisy is something that we're prone to. We're having a bad day. We're not dealing with our sin. We're showing up, pretending that everything's okay. That's what we do. Sadly, hypocrisy shows up especially in how we live our faith. And hypocrisy can actually be present right now correct? Right in this room. Look at the people around you. Quick, take a quick glance. Yes, they could be playing the hypocrite right now. Now, isn't that fun? You don't want to say it out loud, but it's there. There's husbands who are pretending, you know, to be this sensitive husband on Sunday, and all week long they've been ignoring their wife right? There's wives who have this veneer of spirituality, but they're at home contentious and complaining, and all they want is their way, right? Uh, they're singles sometimes that show up at church, and, and they look like they're really on fire for Jesus, and they've been messing around all week long, getting drunk and all kinds of horrible things, and 
the one that is most common that we're aware of as a church, and we hear it at testimony time all the time, is the students who sound like they're submissive to their parents, sound like they're following Christ, but man, they are in a massive rebellious kick with their friends, correct? And some of you have lived that out yourself. So it's all around us all the time. And so what Christ does is expose that, and he exposes even the worst one. You say, what's the worst one? It's the one who claims to know Christ but doesn't know him at all. That's the ultimate hypocrite. These are the ones who conform to external expressions of loving God, but really in their heart, you know, which we can't see, they're just loving themselves. It happens all the time. And they become, like the Pharisees, champions. Because the Pharisees were champions of hypocrisy, putting on a veneer of being super spiritual, godly, prayer warriors, I mean, in the word, quoting scripture, etc. But their hearts were way far from God, way far from Him. And His most blistering denunciations were reserved for those who were making a mockery of God's word. So He exposes them. And he does so for two reasons. They're saved and unsaved in their midst. As he's preaching this sermon in the Sermon on the Mount, there's unsaved and they're saved in their midst, believing those who are being drawn to him and those who are opposed to him. But he wants to expose the unsaved and he wants to motivate the saved to live their faith out. Now, he does this interestingly in that if you were a Jew in the first century, there's three things that you did. Every Jew did them. They gave, okay, sometimes gave alms, gave to the poor, gave to the temple. They prayed and they fasted. These were three disciplines that were super common in the first century. Everybody did it. Now, that's not the way it is today in our culture, but their culture saturated with it. Everybody prayed, everybody gave, and everybody fasted. Everybody. And so Christ is going to take that which is common in a religious practice and saying, well, you can do this properly with a heart that wants to glorify God and be filled with the Spirit, or you can do it as a show. He's going to show them the difference. Are you with me on this? And so what he's going to do, he's going to take each one of these disciplines, so this first whole section of Matthew chapter 6 is about the disciplines, and the first discipline is going to be the discipline of giving. The discipline of giving in verses 1 through 4, and he's going to expose the right way to do that and the wrong way that it's being done. So where are we in our study? If you've been with us and if you're new with us, we're working our way verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We're trying to let the Bible speak for itself. We know this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by Jesus on the north side of the Sea of Galilee on a very acoustic hill. There's thousands around him. His disciples are surrounding him. And he basically talked about the Beatitudes, which were internal indicators of transformation. They demonstrated that you really are born again when you sought to live by the Beatitudes. And then he says, listen, I didn't come to destroy the Word of God. I came to fulfill the Word of God. Here's the problem. The Pharisees are living by oral tradition. Oral tradition is applications and rules about the Word of God, but not the Word of God. So Jesus is constantly being critical of these external rules that really detract from God's Word So they're accusing him of maligning the word of God. And Jesus says, I'm not maligning the word of God. I'm clarifying this oral tradition, all these rules that have come up that are not biblical. So he says six times in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said about this oral tradition. This is what you've been taught. This is what you're living by. This is what you're using to try to get saved. Not the right way to do it. But the Word of God I'm going to teach you says this. What did the oral tradition do? It focused on externals. So I don't commit murder. I'm doing great. I'm a righteous dude. I don't commit adultery. I'm doing great. I'm a righteous dude. And Jesus says, that's you missing the point. Because the Word of God would say, what about the anger in your heart that led to murder? What about the lust in your heart that led to adultery? You see what it's saying? He goes right after the heart. And that's what he's doing 
as he's going through Matthew chapter 5, he's exposing their hearts, their hearts. Now, there's two reasons for that. You know why. I think you all know. Because you need to have your heart exposed so that you see yourself as a what? Sinner who is in need of a Savior. You're trying to earn your salvation. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm never going to make it because my heart just falls short. Maybe I don't commit adultery, but I'm lusting all over the place, and I stand condemned before a holy God. I need a Savior who can forgive me, that God could do the work that I can't do because I can't make myself perfect. Is anybody with me? So I need someone to make me right with God. And so he's driving them to that point. Well, now he's going to take these disciplines praying, giving, fasting, is he going to say, look, you're doing this, and everybody sees it, but it isn't done from the heart. And he's going right after the heart again, showing, look, it's got to be with the right motives. You've got to be doing it for his glory. You've got to be doing it by, by being filled with the Spirit. Otherwise, it's not going to be acceptable. So he goes after that now in Matthew chapter Six. Hopefully you're there in your Bibles. Now he gives this test and he starts this test right on the heels of Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. What does it say? It says, therefore you are to be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is what? Perfect. You and I, to be in heaven, must be what? Perfect. You say, Chris, none of us measure up. This is what Jesus has been exposing. That's correct. So that's why you need to believe in Christ, put your hope in what he did, the God-man dying on the cross, rising from the dead, all of God's wrath for your sin punished on Jesus Christ. You put your life in his hands. He covers you with his perfect righteousness. So you now stand perfect before God, not because of what you did, but because Christ did for you. Are you getting it? He clothes you so you can live before him now and live with him for all eternity. Not only does he close you, but he then regenerates you. He transforms you internally so that you're now wanting to follow him, wanting to please him, and he's going to teach you how to do that, even with the normal disciplines of everyday life. So you need salvation, and Christ is going to make that really obvious. And then if you are genuinely saved, then you definitely need his spirit, and you need to be living for his glory for anything to be pleasing to him. But now he's going to take this issue of giving. Now, this is Christ, and he's focusing on this. He's going to focus on rewards. He's going to focus on giving, and he's going to focus on the sin of hypocrisy, and he's going to help us to know our hearts. So you ready for that? Point number one in your outline, living to impress people results in no reward. No reward. Let's get there. He says, verse one, be what? Beware of practicing your righteousness. Before men. Why? To be noticed by them so they can see me and how gloriously religious I am. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. Now, this is a prophetic style. Prophetic style. He just goes right for the throat. He says, beware. Now, if you're sitting on the slope and you got a little bit, you know, tired or lazy or you're thinking about, you know, all the things that he's just taught in Matthew chapter 5, you might kind of be drifting off. And when he says beware, it's like boom. Okay, you're snapped back to attention because when you do that, you're basically saying to him, listen, watch out, be warned, take heed. If I told you that if you walked out those doors and you went to the left, there'd be about 13 crocodiles that are going to eat you. But if you go to the right, you're going to be okay. So which way would you go when you leave the doors? So I'm telling you right now, that's they're responding to this by saying, beware, they know this is really important. Take heed, listen up. Listen, this is one road in life where it's easy to detour into danger. And that's the practice of hypocrisy while you're doing your normal Christian religious experiences that you start practicing righteousness to be noticed. And when we do this, Jesus says we already have our reward We already have it. It's an earth-only temporary reward. Now, some of you in this room, even in the back section there, some of you in the back of the bus, are are people who've gotten great rewards, correct? Some of you at school, you got the 4.0, the 4.0 beyond O. You know, you you did incredible things athletically. Uh, You were student of the year. I got that. I got student of the year. 
And you know what? It's so long ago that the trophy's gone and the plaque that I saved that was on the trophy's now gone. It doesn't matter. It, it didn't last a lifetime. It, it didn't even last two decades. Are you tracking with me? Now, I'm not being critical of those of you who won awards, but understand, they're not eternal. Can I hear an amen to that? They're not. The point is, what he's saying here is that you, you need to understand that self-achievement is far less than God's glory. Um, that living in your strength and not by the strength of the Spirit is definitely going to be an issue in your life. And you need to make sure that are you living for the praise of people or the praise of God himself? Are you tracking with me? That's the danger of your earthly reward. And guess what? The people who are living their righteousness in front of people, they're going to get rewards. People are going to esteem them. People are going to think, oh, that's a godly gal. That's a godly guy. They're going to get the esteem of people, but that's all they're going to get. That's all they get. It's not eternal. It's not going to last forever. It might not even last five years. People will forget. Even though we get this earthly reward, our heavenly Father is not impressed. Are you getting that from verse 1? He's not. Look what he says. Practicing your righteousness in front of people to be noticed by people. And that word notice, you want to circle that in your Bible if you can. If you're not a writer in your Bible, then put it in your notes. That's that word noticed. In other words, what that word noticed is where we get that Greek word, the English word for theater. Can you see what he's saying here? He's saying, you're putting on a show. You're creating a spectacle. Your faith is now a play to be watched. You're performing. You're being noticed. You're performing for other people. It's theatrical righteousness. That's not empowered by God. That's not for God's glory. It doesn't actually magnify his character. It's a performance to impress others to get the applause of people. That's what it is. And he's saying, that's the wrong way to go, friends. That's not the way to live. These are hypocritical actions all for show. Sadly, we can't see your heart. When you do something for the Lord, uh, you do something for Christ, I can't tell whether it's genuine or it's for show, and neither can you. Do you know why? Because there's only one person who can tell, and who's that? Christ, right? That's the point. Listen, when you try to evaluate someone's motive or what is driving their behavior, you are truly judging them. And Jesus says, do not judge lest you be judged. Are you tracking with me? That's judgment. Now listen, if you, I say this all the time, rob a bank, and I, Julianne, robs a bank. And I go, Julianne, you robbed a bank. And she goes, stop judging me. Okay, I'm not judging Julianne because she robbed a bank. She did it. It's, it's behavior. Tracking with me? But... I can't tell if she does something for the Lord or she does something for herself because it's a heart issue and there's only one person who knows all your motives and everything, why you do what you do, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is omniscient. He knows everything, correct? He knows your thinking, your motives, your emotions, everything. But other people can't. So we don't judge motives, though we can evaluate behavior is what I'm trying to say. But here, it's a show. It's a show. And the scary part is you do get a reward. And the reward you get, are you ready for this, is the applause of other hypocrites and the esteem of ignorant people. People are going to esteem you for what you do. Spiritual leaders might be impressed by what you do. Friends and family might say thanks. Others may comment on how spiritual you are, how devoted you are. But what does God say? Verse 1. What's he say? You have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. God does not reward man-pleasers. If you're a man-pleaser, a woman-pleaser, if you're seeking to impress people with your Christian behavior, you are robbing God of his glory. And God will not stand for that. Another reason the Lord describes the hypocrite is because one of Satan's most effective techniques is to have hypocrisy in the context of the church which robs and undermines the power of the church through that hypocrite and that hypocrisy. Who are the hypocrites? There are two kinds. You need to figure out which one you are, all right? Two kinds of hypocrites. Number one is the non-believer. 
The non-believer who's masquerading as a Christian, that's a make-believer. I use that term. The phony terror, they may think they're saved, but they're not born again. They live only to impress other people. All right, so what's the other hypocrite? Well, that's the true believer, number two, who is sinful at that time, pretending to be spiritual. This is a real believer, a genuine, fruit-bearing, born-again Christian who is temporarily, and it's always temporary, it's never permanent, temporary, living the flesh, relying on their own strength, who in a moment of embarrassment or self-serving pride is trying to impress other believers with their devotion or, you know, not have to be accountable or not have to give an answer. Well, the make-believer, all they get is judgment in hell forever. The temporary flesh actions of the real believer is a loss of eternal reward. Get the difference? One is under judgment The other one is loss of reward. Now, did you notice how God is described in verse 1? He's described as what? Our Father who's in heaven. He makes that statement. Jesus makes that so we're separating what goes on in heaven and what goes on on earth, what's eternal, what lasts forever, and what is temporary, what goes on on this planet. So he's making a distinction when he says Father in heaven, and he's speaking of eternal rewards here. Now, every single Christian in this room is going to give answer to your life, and you're going to be evaluated for your reward. Are you going to have to give answer for your sins, yes or no? Yes or no? No. Who gave answer for your sins? That's right. Past, present, and future. And when he said, it is finished, you know what that means? It's finished. It's done. Can I hear an amen to that? St. Chris, that's really good news. That's the good news. He did the work. He did it for you. But you will be evaluated for how you lived this life. You now have an opportunity to put him on display, to live for his glory, to be filled with the Spirit, or to live in your own strength, live for your own glory. You have that opportunity, and you're going to be evaluated, and it's talked about in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Take a look at it. For we, that's all Christians, must, not an option, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the bema. So that, why? Each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. That means that life now that you're living right now in this physical body, according to what you have done, not thought about, hoped about, imagined yourself doing. No, what you actually did, whether it is what? Good or bad. Now, you're all going to face the Bema. The Bema is like the Olympic platform where it has third, second, and first. It's a a reward platform. That's the Bema. And Christians are rewarded for any behavior, write it down, that is done, filled with the Spirit for the glory of God. Two conditions. Anything that you do, I can't vacuum your house. You're vacuuming your house for the glory of God and in the power of the Spirit. It's rewardable. Okay, it is. You're doing it for His glory. You do your job for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit. It's rewardable. You do it in your own strength for your own glory. It's not. doesn't matter what it is. So don't dichotomize. This is ministry. This counts. And that's not ministry. doesn't count. No, all of life for His glory for the power, in the power of the Spirit. Now, the good actions are that. The bad actions are done in the flesh, which is your strength. And for your own glory. Now in heaven, we find and study the New Testament, there are crowns which are given. And in Revelation chapter 4 verse 10, it says we cast these crowns before the throne in front of Christ. We'll look at that again in a minute. But the best understanding of reward seems to focus on the idea of capacity. Everybody understand capacity? Capacity is when I go to in and out with my six-year-old incredible grandson, Maverick, he can maybe have a burger... And I could have, in my earlier days, maybe one or two double-doubles, okay, loaded, right, with fries, maybe chili, and a chocolate shake, and maybe another one to chase it, okay? So I had, and still do to this day, a greater capacity for in and out than my grandson. Now, when he eats his burger and I eat my burgers, we're both satiated and full and happy and grateful that California is known for in and out Okay, so we get it. But we're both full, but my capacity is bigger. Are you tracking with me? So, very important that you understand, in heaven, those who store up treasure and do 
for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit and serve for God's glory and live in the Spirit in this life will have a greater capacity to glorify God in eternity. It will make a difference. Now, if you don't do much, you're still going to be full. No, right? Little Mavi is full, but he just doesn't. I'll have a greater capacity to glorify God, but we're all going to be really happy and full. It's not going to be like, well, he's got a greater capacity. No, you're just satiated, couldn't handle another thing. Of God's glory. Are you tracking? Sorry, I keep saying that. So, I don't know about you, but I want as many heavenly double-doubles as I can eat. All right? And hopefully you are too, because it motivates me. Rewards motivate me this day and every day to live for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit. It motivates me that everything I do would be that way. Now, if you don't know Christ, you get no reward, you get judgment. But those believers who temporarily live for man's applause... Those believers who live to impress others by their Christian example will lose their reward. They'll have lesser eternal reward capacity. Tracking with me? No, I said it again. So as the Lord tests his audience now, what he helps them see is whether they live for his glory or they live for man's applause. And he's going to use those three disciplines that are very common to this community. Again, giving and then praying And then fasting is where we're headed. And that's the first big test, the disciplines, how you respond to those. So point number two in your outline, he's now going to test giving. He's going to give the negative example of giving in verse two and the positive example in verses three and four. So number two, living to impress people with your giving rewards with applause. You're giving so people will notice. Verse two, what's he say? So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their, what? Reward in full. Now the word hypocrite came from the Greek usage of a mask that a Greek actor put on. You know, remember those masks? I don't like these masks, but they're, they're the big giant frowny face or a big giant happy face. And so if you're sitting in way back in the, you know, a Greek kind of, kind of Colosseum gathering, you could see, oh, that guy's happy or that guy's sad. And that's what they did. They were trying to communicate something that they're playing a, a, a person. And originally it was to communicate the mask. And later on it was then uh, used for anyone who pretended to be what he was not, a hypocrite, right? Uh, that's where it came from. So the first area that people are tempted to parade their piety is giving. And Jesus then contrasts the wrong approach in verse 2 with the right approach in verses 3 and 4. We'll look at them. And he begins with how not to give. And the Pharisees were giving alms intentionally so that other people would take notice. Other people would see them. They're giving alms. Now what's an alm? Uh, It started, the word, with any time you gave uh, an act of mercy not just giving, but just you expressed pity, was an alm, and then it became giving, and it was giving money or food or clothing to the poor, right? He talks about the poor here. So notice Jesus doesn't introduce this teaching with an if, he introduces it with a what? When you give to the poor, assuming that that's something that we are to do, that he expects us to do, to give alms, is referring to actually giving, not good intentions, uh, not warm feelings of pity that never find practical expression. When done in the right spirit, it's not only permissible, it's an expectation. When you give these alms. Now, he's not talking about giving to the church right now. He's talking about giving to the poor, which is different from that, but it's a part of our giving. So we give to those who are in need is the genuine way to look at this. Not just poor, but giving those who are in need. And when it's done in the right spirit, it's an obligation. It's what we do. So God always delighted in acts of mercy. Even in the Old Testament, he delighted in generosity. Leviticus 25, he basically tells his countrymen that if someone who in your country, your community becomes poor, you sustain him until he can get on his feet. That's Leviticus 25. In Deuteronomy 15, if you free a slave who is a Jew, you send him away with part of your flock, your food, and even your wine, you give to him, and the Bible says, even as the Lord has given to you. The Lord blessed you, now you bless him. So even Jesus and his disciples, when they were about the you know, three and a half years of a public ministry, they had a money bag, and the money bag was for what? 
It's the poor, to help the poor, to minister to them. So it's clear from the Bible that giving alms is only wrong when it's for self, in your own strength, or to impress others. There's no evidence, though, this is kind of interesting, in the Bible, historically or archaeologically, that the Pharisees actually blew a trumpet when they gave. All right? So what's Jesus saying here? Well, it was so obvious, it's as if they blew a trumpet. In other words, somehow they stood around or did something. Uh, maybe they made noises, you know, and blew their trumpet or something, you know, or they had sinus issues. I don't know. Okay? But somehow they gave, so, and, and they didn't give until everybody's watching. So they, they blew their own trumpet, so to speak. All right? And that's what he's telling them here. And interesting enough, when you look at this on a practical level and an honest level, we have ways of letting people know when we give, don't we? We sometimes subtly, accidentally let people know we gave to them. Uh, we want to impress them. In fact, verse 2, so that they may be honored by men. So even if your heart, you want to be honored by men, but you don't show it, it's still dishonest. It's still far less than what God wants you to do. It's not the right way. God alone knows your heart. God alone judges your heart. It's your heart that's mattering in this issue, correct? It's what you're doing this for him. So the reward that people want is to let others know about their giving, and they want the praise to be honored by men. And Jesus reminds them that recognition, verse 2, comes and becomes their full reward. That recognition that they get in this life is their full reward. Uh, see that phrase there? They have their reward. That actually is a technical expression in the Greek language, which means paid in full and receded. And what he's communicating, Jesus, as he's preaching this, is that nothing more is owed, nothing will ever be paid. Those who give for the purpose of impressing others with their generosity receive no other reward, especially from God. Are you getting it? They get the praise, that's it. The Lord owes them nothing. And when we give to please men, our only reward will be what men alone can give. Seeking men's earthly blessings forfeits God's heavenly blessing. Write it down. Seeking men's earthly blessing forfeits God's heavenly blessing. So how do we give the right way? I'm so glad you asked. Number three in your outline, living to impress God with your giving. That's rewarded by God. Look at verse three. Verse three, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now to be poor in our culture is different than what it was to be poor in the New Testament. In the New Testament, you were poor when you lacked food, you couldn't eat, when you lacked clothing, or when you lacked shelter. Any one of those three, any one made you poor, made you poor. That's, when he's talking about the poor, that's who he's addressing in this context. So ideally, you're giving to someone who lacks food or lacks clothing or shelter and those in need. And not only joyfully and generously, but it's done with the right motive. And the most satisfying giving, the giving that really pleases the Lord, is the giving that's given and forgotten. You give, and that's it. You're done. You don't pat yourself on the back. It's just done in love and out of a response to a need. And when that need is met, you basically give her, you go about your business. You're not waiting for any recognition. Not any recognition. What has been done should be, verse 3, a secret of our left hand. You say, what does that mean? Well, basically, when he tells us how to give, and again, sometimes you give and people are ungrateful. It doesn't matter. Because you're not giving to that person, you're giving to who? To the Lord. So if they're ungrateful, that, you know, pray for them. But the issue is the result in giving in secret is you don't draw attention. You just want God's attention. So how do you give? Not let your left hand know where your right hand's doing. Now this is three things. It could be an, actually a reference to a magic trick. You know how you do a magic trick and all of a sudden they go, where'd it go? So you give the gift and it's like, where'd it go? It's, it's just gone. It's done. And it's over. Uh, it could be that it's a proverbial expression referring to giving spontaneity and uh, just spontaneous and then uh, with no special effort or show. Or it could be metaphorically, it means to give in secret without drawing attention to yourself. So it's one of those three and it's probably a combination of them. But
But in fact, you go way out of your way to avoid attention. Giving in secret means no one knows except our omniscient God, and God knows everything. Amen? He knows. So he's the one that you're giving to. Verse 4 describes this approach to giving as a private moment of giving, as an act of worship that brings pleasure to God, who alone always knows what you're doing. And watch this. He always knows why you're doing what you're doing and will reward you for your generosity. So how are you rewarded? Well, in this life, uh, the gracious reward comes to the sincere giver with the knowledge that a need has been met. You know, the naked have been clothed, the building has been started, the sick have been healed, the weak have been encouraged, the building has been finished, the lost saved, the forgotten found, the wayward restored, the building was used for His glory. Did I say building? I don't know. It's in me. So the Lord states a fact here, a promise from the one who cannot lie, who knows everything about you. There's no doubt that this kind of giving receives a unique reward in this life and in the next. In fact, there are many New Testament promises that as you give in this life, you're given to by the Lord. And that's abused by certain movements and theologies, but there's a truth that there's a return. It doesn't always happen numerically. It doesn't always happen financially, but there's an amazing return that comes as you give. There really is. And interesting enough, only the generous soul who gives as an act of worship will enjoy a confident joy confident hope and satisfaction in this life, plus to knowledge of eternal crowns, eternal reward with a greater capacity to glorify God for all eternity. The greatest reward a believer can have is the knowledge that you've pleased the Lord. And all giving, all giving is to the Lord, no matter who you're giving it to. Our motive as we look forward to his rewards should be the anticipation of casting them as an offering to his feet. That's what the elders who represent the church in Revelation chapter 4 verse 10, the 24 elders were cast their crowns before the throne and they say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Who's the one who saved you? God. Who's the one that enabled you to do anything for his glory? God. So as you receive these incredible rewards, what do you do? You give them back to the one who made it all possible. That's what you do. And we demonstrate our capacity to glorify him by casting our crowns in front of him. So what Jesus is saying is this. If you give alms to the poor to demonstrate your own generosity You will get the admiration of men, but that's all you'll get. That's it. That's your payment in full. If your aim is to get yourself the world's rewards, you no doubt will get them, but you must not look for rewards which God alone can give. One author said this, you would be a sad, short-sighted creature who grasps the rewards of time to let the rewards of eternity go. So give sincerely. I, I modified MacArthur's list of, from the scripture of seven principles to guide us in a non-hypocritical giving. So verse 3 and 4 is the genuine giving. What does that look like? Well, let me give you seven points really quickly. First in your outline, giving from the heart is investing with God. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Now to this I, I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You're investing in eternity, and how you sacrifice now makes a difference. Secondly, genuine giving is to be sacrificial. One of my favorite passages is David, who refused to give anything to the Lord which cost him nothing. If it was all extra, it was all surplus, David didn't think it was worthy of the Lord. So generosity truly is not measured by the size of the gift. Generosity is measured by the size in comparison to what is possessed. Mark chapter 12 puts it this way. The widow who gave two small copper coins, uh, Jesus says she gave more than all the rich with all their large sums because they all put in out of their surplus, but she, the widow, out of her poverty, she put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Generosity is measured by the sacrifice. Thirdly, Responsibility for giving has no relationship to how, what, how much a person has. 
what your portfolio is. A person who is not generous when he is poor will not be generous if he becomes rich. The issue is the heart, correct? So therefore, he might give a larger portion when he gets rich, but he will not give a larger proportion. Luke 16.10 says it this way, he who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in what? Much. He who is unrighteous in a little thing is unrighteous also in much. Giving is not a matter of how much money one has, it's how much love and care is in your heart. Fourthly, material giving correlates to spiritual blessings. It correlates, they're connected. Uh, to those who are not faithful with mundane things like money and mundane things like possessions, the Lord will not entrust things that are of greater value. Luke 16, 11 puts it this way, If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? You realize this, that fruitful ministry on your part and your ability to impact others for Jesus Christ is somewhat, not completely, but t- somewhat linked to your giving. If you're faithful in little things, God then opens the door for you to be faithful in the things that really matter. In fact, fifthly, giving is to be personally determined. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, let each one do as he has, what? Purposed in his heart, not grudgingly under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Righteous giving is done from a generous heart, not from legalistic percentages. The Macedonian Christians gave out of their poverty. The Philippians Gave out of their poverty. Now, wait, you just learned what it means to be poor in the New Testament. You lack food, you lack clothes, you lack shelter. One of those three or all three of those things. And they're giving generously to the saints in Jerusalem in their own starvation. They're not eating, but they're giving generously. That, that's why Paul makes such a big deal about it. That they were unbelievably sacrificial. And you know, when you talk about stuff like this in a materialistic culture, oh man, it's hard, isn't it? Because we're all wealthy. Uh, we're not lacking food, clothing, or shelter, and, and therefore we're, and we're super wealthy compared to even to the world, and, and it's difficult for us to deal with this truth. But Jesus is talking about giving, he's talking about reward, he's talking about hypocrisy here. And so we gotta deal with it. So sixthly, we are to give in response to need. The early Christians in Jerusalem were battling because as soon as they became Christians and were baptized, they were kicked out of their house and they lost their job. So this whole church made up of thousands of people, many of them have no job and no family anymore. So they're supporting one another in the Jerusalem church, and now there's even a famine in Jerusalem, and so Paul collects money from the Galatian churches to help them because the famine is so strong and they're still being carried by the church because they've been booted out. Now, what's interesting, and we know, what a legitimate need is and what an illegitimate need is. So let me clarify. Catch this. We will always have charlatans who manufacture needs and they play on you who are super merciful, super compassionate, and the sympathy of others. And there have always been professional beggars who are able to work, but they choose not to. Not to. And a Christian has no responsibility at all to support people like these and should take care to determine if and when there's a real need exists. Sometimes you can't tell, so you give and help with food or whatever by faith. Sometimes you're obviously taken advantage of, but you don't know, so you give by faith. But, but before you give your money, you want to, as best as you can, identify that it's a real need. In fact, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone will not work, neither let him what? Eat. Seventhly, giving demonstrates love, not law. The New Testament contains no commands for specific amounts or percentages of giving. The percentage that we give is determined by what our love from our hearts and the need of others. And all of these principles point to the obligation to give generously, sacrificially. This is how we give as Christians because we're investing in God's work and it's eternal. We're willing to sacrifice for him. Why are we willing to sacrifice for Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ sacrificed everything for us. Everything. Because our giving has no bearing on what we have. Because we want spiritual riches more than financial riches. Because we have personally determined to give. Because we want to meet as many needs as we can that are around us. And our love compels us to give. Not because you have to. Listen, one more time. Who changes your nature? Who does that? Christ. 
When does he do it? At the point of salvation. And we now have a heart that wants to love others in need, to care for them. It's not something that we worked up. God gave us that. And in every area of righteousness, the key is the heart. The heart is the matter and the matter of the heart. And are you a biblical, generous, non-hypocritical, sacrificial giver from the heart? So let's take it home. Are you ready? By answering some very pointed questions on hypocrisy. They go pretty fast, so stay with me. Letter A, the Lord Jesus is asking you, do you carry on your relationship with Christ in secret throughout the week, or is it only a public Sunday event? That's the first step in hypocrisy. It's like, listen, you leave here, you're still living for Christ. If you're in Christ, you, everything's for him. Letter B, the Lord's asking you, how much of each day are you intentionally dependently filled with his spirit relying on him to work through you doing whatever you do and all you do to the glory of God is that you or is that not you because that's the key to your eternal reward and that's the key to not being a hypocrite let her see what outward Christian behaviors of yours are often flaunted or exaggerated or even faked we're not the same Everyone in this room is not the same. The people sitting next to you are not the same. And you're remembering that the Lord that you love sees your heart motives. And as he sees your heart motives, what should you adjust? What should you adjust? What things should you avoid? Because for you, they tend toward hypocrisy. I mean, Hebrews 4.13 says it this way. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But how many things? All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Letter D. Do you understand the difference between letting people see your good works and also giving in secret? Now, some people see an apparent contradiction. Matthew chapter 6, that should be uh, 3 and 4, not 33. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. And then Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and glorify you. Wait a minute. So secret but see, how does that work out? The issue is not whether you do good works in front of people or not, or whether they see them. The issue is, are they done for his glory in the power of the Spirit? Are you getting it? One more time. For his glory in the power of the Spirit. When they're done in such a way that glory goes to God, he's pleased. When it's done by being the fill of the Spirit, he's pleased. And if it's done to be noticed by men, God is not pleased. In fact, A.B. Bruce gives this helpful distinction. You might want to write this down. We are to show when we're tempted to hide. And we're to hide when we're tempted to show. Get the difference? Letter E. Do you regularly and systematically give to your church? That's not what this passage is about, but giving is a part of that. And then do you give as God directs you to meet a genuine need? That is what he's talking about in this passage. Christians are to give faithfully to the church. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save as you may what? Prosper. Now, just because we don't take a physical offering here doesn't mean that you're not supposed to give one to the Lord. And Christians are also called to directly, when they see a need directed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and for the glory of God, to give to others in need. Now, does God need our gifts, yes or no? No. He is entirely sufficient on his own. The need is on our part for our good to give. That's why Matthew 6.21, for where our treasure is, there our heart is also. Paul even said it this way in Philippians 4.17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. All Christians are those who regularly give to the church and give towards specific needs when they see them so the question is, are you a Christian? Because that heart comes from him. Letter F, are you curbing behaviors that tempt you toward hypocritical attitudes, toward boastfulness? Now, can I ask this without people being massively offended at me? Would you agree that there is massive temptation to impress people on social media? That's one of the premises of social media is to tell them all about you. Are you going to some places where you shop where you're more tempted to impress people than to please God? Are you making decisions for your children 
all about impressing people over trusting God. Letter G. Are you owning that God does not reward hypocrisy, but he does punish it? There are two types of hypocrite. One that is saved, but stumbling temporarily in the flesh. Two is the unsaved. They're often a terror. They act like a Christian, but they don't know Christ. This is why Jesus came. Stay with me. You can't do this on your own. You can't give in a way that actually pleases God on your own. It has to be that you are in Christ, and then you're doing it for Christ. That's what a Christian is. And again, you realize that what Jesus is doing is exposing your hearts. He's saying, what's going on behind all this? What's really motivating you? And he's, some of you are going, wait a minute, there's some sin there i got to deal with, and maybe I can clean up my outside, but I can't change that inside. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. So God knew that you couldn't work your way to heaven. That God had to do the work for you, so he comes from heaven to become a man. The God-man, Jesus Christ, he lives a perfect life, then chooses to suffer and die on the cross on your behalf where all of God's wrath for your sin falls on Christ and is punished there. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. And now when you put your trust in him, you surrender your life. You deny yourself and you say, by faith and repentance, I now put my life in his hands. He can cover you with his perfect righteousness, which makes you then be able to walk with him now and to be with him forever in heaven because it's not what you did, it's what Christ did for you, correct? Nothing about your religion, but everything about what he covered you in his perfect robe of righteousness, and then he changes you internally, so now you have a heart that wants to give, wants to meet a need, wants to love others, even imperfectly, and we're not going to do it perfectly until we get to heaven, but we want to do that. Can I hear an amen to that? And nothing will matter in your life until you're in Christ and then being able to be filled with the Spirit where it would then can count for all eternity. Christian, please don't leave discouraged. Every one of your sins, past, present, and future, has already been crucified with Christ. It is finished. It is done. So now we live for reward. We live to please Him. We live because we want to honor Him. And it's done in honesty and without hypocrisy. And we can be those people. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to change our lives, cause us to be the men and women you want us to be. We pray, Father, that you would glorify yourself uh, by our response to your word in a way that would please you. And, Father, that you might even draw some who don't know you to yourself and will give you all the praise and all the glory for what you'll do. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.